probably do a little bit of a mic check, but just uh, by way of introduction, I might not even introduce the panel, but Robin McConnell will. Robin, you will know uh, if you're paying attention to comics, arts, graphic storytelling, and whatnot as the host of the Ink Studs uh, radio show on CITR, more recently podcast, and the book of the same name. Uh, I think Robin has interviewed practically every comics artist in the world. Uh, maybe not quite, but uh, almost that. Anyway, so we'll turn over the proceedings to Robin McCall. Oh, hi. Oh, hot mic. Uh, we're just trying to figure out who sits where. We didn't discuss this. I'm trying to be at the end, but I think people want me somewhere else. Just give us about five minutes. <laughs> And I think we have some boxes for tables for our water. <laughs> and can we please get some water, please? I'm not used to uh, talking with the mic, so let me know if I'm doing a little too much. Sibilance? Can you talk on a mic on the radio? It's a headset. <laughs> I used to be on the, on the radio, now I just podcast. Um, okay, so as you said, I host the Inksuds podcast. Uh, I've been doing it out of Vancouver for almost 11 years now. And basically, the premise of the show was I interview cartoonists and folks involved in comics. So both uh, Sarah Levitt has been on the show and Nick Bantock has been on the show. Johnny hasn't. I'm sorry, Johnny. I was not invited. <laughs> Why haven't you been? We'll change that soon. I feel like I'm too loud on this. Is that better? Okay. And there's some drawings. Oh, we had guys all messed up. You're not like your drawings on there. So we'll let people figure out. Um, so maybe uh, folks can choose themselves. Uh, I don't know how many people here are familiar with everyone's work, um, but maybe we can start just talking a little bit about kind of what your most recent major works are. Is that okay? Yes, Johnny can go first. Uh, uh, my name's Johnny Christmas. I'm a, a cartoonist. Uh, currently I'm working on a, a project called Angel Catbird, uh, written by uh, Margaret Atwood. Um, uh, we just launched early this month, and it's been a fun ride. Hi, can you that on? Is that a little closer? Mm -hmm. Is it working at night? Okay. My name is Nick Bantock. Um, best known probably for the Griffin and Sabine books, which first emerged in 1991. Um, since then, there have been seven in the series, the last one just coming out this year. Um, I, my books, I, I don't know whether you'd really call them graphic novels. They're, they're something that really almost doesn't have a title. Um, in the 25 years since the first one came out, I've done 27, 28 books. I tend to lose track. Um, that's, that's who I am. Hi, um, my name is Sarah Lovett, and I wrote a book called Tangles in 2010, was first published, and it was a memoir about my mom who died of Alzheimer's um, in comics form. And I'm working on my second book right now, which hopefully will be ready soon, but you know. Um, and I'm working on a, a, a feature length animation of my first book. I did not know that, congratulations. Now, it, one of the interesting things about Three of You is uh, this kind of come the premise as a comics panel, but as Nick said, he doesn't really kind of necessarily see your work as comics, but all three of you are coming from very different directions creatively with your work, but the, I guess the, the joiner of it all is it's all um, the usage of art as a storytelling technique. And, um, and I know for Sarah, that wasn't necessarily your first direction. You were going to go in as a writer, um, and Nick, you've done many novels as well, right? Um, and Johnny, you do a lot of drama. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about 
what is it about utilizing art as a means of telling your story, the stories that you want to tell? And I don't know, Nick, if that was kind of a first direction for you as a writer. Well, I was a, originally I was a, a painter. That's what I did at college. And in fact, I didn't write my first book until I was 40. Uh, in fact, I had no idea that I could write. It was only when the publisher told me that I was going to be doing my own book that I acquiesced uh, painfully. Um, but for me, um, the, the whole notion of narrative, where words and images are used equally and in a parallel form. So that it's much like a really good marriage. So that each informs the other and supports the other. It's not a one-sided thing. Like, I don't even think of the, the art that's in my books as being illustration. Because that would, by definition, um, suggest that it's subservient to the word. I, I, I genuinely believe that the image is equally as important as the word is itself. And that often leads to um, a, a parallel narrative running through the story, where the images are telling one thing, the words are telling another. And whilst they don't go in denial, they actually fill in different pieces of information to different sides of the brain. Sarah, you seem keen to follow up. Well, yeah, I mean, that's. I don't know where to start. It just made me think about, I, I'm teaching a, a few courses at UBC right now in the creative writing department, um, forcing writing students to make comics. And they're always like, oh, we have to draw. I don't know how to draw. And then as soon as they start doing it, they just get filled with this incredible joy. And it's so exciting for them to discover that, just like you said, it's not like they're illustrating their stories. They're actually creating this whole new thing that has this completely different kind of... Well, it comes from a different part of your being. <laughs> I, I, I can keep talking. <laughs> but, no, I was going to say, no, I, I originally decided that I was going to write about my mom as a prose book, and um, and then I kind of had a bit of a nervous breakdown after she died, and but that's a different story. And... Uh, I got out my diaries and I was kind of trying to look through them and figure out what I was going to put in my book and there were all these sketches in them and it was just this way that I had of remembering what happened and so it, was, it just became more and more like I started by cutting up pages of my diary and kind of gluing them together and photocopying them and then it just I just realized that I needed to make comics. What was your entrance into comics, Johnny? Uh, I write comics a lot as a kid, and um, so originally I just kind of wanted to do them. As soon as I realized that people made them, that they just weren't products that just existed. Um, and then I, I moved into, when I went into uh, art school, I went into fine arts painting and, and uh, illustration, and I had to find my way back to comics. I went into prose, and, and um, I realized that comics was the form I found uh, best for expressing the stories I wanted to tell. That's it. Well, it allows you to um, communicate with people in a way that yeah. fine art doesn't. I mean, fine art tends to be something of a, um, an elitist avenue. Yeah. Where, whereas when you're producing something that you actually have an audience who respond to you, so you then begin to feel like you've got some kind of dialogue going, which feeds Exactly. There's there's a slightly populist element to it, and I love the subtlety of it. You can have a, a character raise an eyebrow, and everyone kind of knows what that means instead of having to, you know, uh, pound away at an illustration that like uh, that has to um, convey a sort of importance. Where comics can kind of, in a very um, direct manner, due to the uh, iconography of the art form, you can you can simplify greatly, or you can render intensely, but. Either way, you can sort of uh, find home through your message, get it home. That kind of leads into what my next question was going to be, is what do you find in creating um, comics, art-based storytelling, um, that you can do with that that is such a strength that you can't get necessarily through prose, um, and even like animated and stuff, just that particular book element of storytelling with art. I like that you can go at your own pace. Um, you're not beholden to the 
the, uh, with film, there's a time. Like, you, it, it's two hours, and you're going at that pace, and the story is told in that time. With uh, comics, like all books, you can go forward and backwards. You can skip ahead if you want to. You can pause, reflect, think about it, go have a sandwich. <laughs> you know, that thing sort of settle. Um, that's what I like best about the form. For me, I think it's the fact that you can create atmosphere. You don't actually have to speak directly in terms of the literal position that the prose are describing. So it's, it's almost like being able to fill in the whole background with imagery. It's like when you walk into a, a, a gallery, say in London, and you walk into the, uh, the Rubens room, and the, there's one thing looking at each individual painting and seeing what the story is, but there's quite another in terms of what's the atmosphere that I feel. Whereas, say, you walk in and you see the Rothko, you actually, even though it's non-figurative, you get the same kind of thing. So when you can start pulling that into your books and your storytelling, it can take you so much further than mere prose can do. Yeah, and there's something more, um, there's something so intimate about making a comic book and, and or, you know, a, a book with your art and words in it that, yeah, you can hold in your hand and just, you're making something with your own hands that somebody else is gonna hold in their hands. It's different from a book that you're gonna have printed, you know, especially if you're handwriting in your hand, making all the, all the content of it. It's like a small thing that you're giving to, you know, the people that are, yeah, that are reading. The, the other thing I was going to say is that it also applies, it, it allows you both your, um, your intellect and your intuition to come into the same space. I mean, I, th I think imagery tends to feed more directly intuition, uh, whereas the words tend to ascribe, you know, to a, a more cerebral base. So if you can bring both of those in, of you know, yourself at the same time, you're getting a much better balance. Now, Tony, you said you've done prose in the past as well. Um, so this, Richard's question, which both you've announced for all three, is how do you approach doing an illustrated work or a drawn work with comparison to doing just straight out prose? Uh, and kind of how do you approach that work? What do you get out of doing it in a different way? It really is, uh, like Nick said, two different sides of your brain. Um, it's hard for me even now to, to think about uh, the entry point to each. Uh, when I'm drawing or writing stories for myself that I know are going to be told in a visual medium, uh, it's on one track. And when I'm writing in prose, it's a different track, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's, it's completely different. Um, I'm trying now to, to find a way how to describe it. Um, with prose, uh, I tend to write long and I just kind of uh, immerse, just like just throw words in description and I try and find my way through it, through the editing process. Um, and with uh, drawing comics or um, illustration or what have you, it's, um, it's a discovery of a different sort. There's an editing process as well to get there, but it's uh, much more, um, not more fluid. It's a different kind of fluidity. What about the difference between how you're approaching illustrative work compared, because you have Angel Catbird, which you're working with the writer, and you also have Firebug, which is writing an island um, from Image Comics, uh, which you're writing and drawing yourself. Uh, the difference between the two? Yeah, that kind of process of engaging the work and creating the work? Uh, it's uh, both a collaboration and one's purely me. Uh, so the one that's me is much more um, uh, fluid. So I, I, I write it down and I think about it and it lives with me a lot more. And the collaboration is a lot more, um, it's like tennis. So uh, you're tossing things back and forth and then there's a fun discovery through the collaboration, like, how about this? Oh, how about that? I didn't think about this. It's, uh, it's, a, it's like uh, hanging out with a friend you know, after school and, and, and playing around with different pieces, whereas the um, working on something myself is much more of a, um, uh, it's just me kind of figuring out the world I want to build by myself.
different but both enjoyable. Uh, I think for, for me that um, words stimulate images, images stimulate words. So I'll, I'll be working on both at the same time. So it's almost as though the book begins in the middle. So I might start with two or three images that I find exciting and uh, a little tiny bit of story idea or maybe two or three paragraphs. And then they'll just feed off each other and grow and grow and grow from the center outwards. So do you start with the, there's like an inception of an idea and then you build from there or do you yeah. kind of have a... Yeah, it's, 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 it's all about excitement. You know, I, I set my studio up in such a way that um, I've got painting section, drawing section, I'll write over here. And when I go in in the morning, I don't say what should I be doing or where did I leave off. I say, what do I want to do? You know, where, where is my excitement? Where is my enthusiasm? And I'll just simply go there and, and I'll keep moving on that until I don't know what comes next. And then I'll ask myself the question again and then move to that other point. And it's, it's amazing, once you actually start to trust that process, um, it, it takes on a life of its own. And then the day goes and you just keep on feeding into each other. You just find a through line through all of the... Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 you know, I've always said, I don't make the books. You know, I, I simply put myself there with whatever I've got and they come out. At the end of the day, I get to say, wow, where'd that come from? That sounds really, really fun. <laughs> it is, really, it is. That's what I'm doing. I think my process is a bit more tortured. Than I That's okay. Yeah. But I, I like hearing you guys talk about how it's a bit of a back and forth because I think with my first book, I really, really didn't know what I was doing. And, and I kind of, I almost, like it just kind of Yeah, and then I thought, oh, well, for my second book, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to write a whole script, and then I'm going to do all my thumbnails, and then I'm going to do all my pencils, and I'm going to do my inks, because then I'll be like a real cartoonist. <laughs> and it just didn't work, and it was much more of a, it is still much more of a back and forth and a kind of lumps of things coming together and kind of, um, you know, working, like figuring, I feel like I figured out part of the story through writing and then I start drawing it and I figure something out through the drawing. Like there's some stuff that you're just not gonna be able to work through until you try to actually make it visual. Even if you think you figured out the story, I feel like once you start writing, or once you start drawing, you realize other things that you would never, like, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to name drop here, so forgive me. I just need it to sort of put it in there. I, I was once in Peter Gabriel's studio, and um, he would he constructs his albums in terms of little images. So he would do these little three by three drawings and pin them up on the wall, and then he'd play it, you know, start with a piece of music, and then he'd go back and he'd start moving the little images around. So it's not just in, in terms of you know, writing and art. It, even in other realms, I, I think images can actually you know, help move things around. They, they almost become the, sort of the, the, the lubricant that allows uh, imagination to occur. Um, one of the things I really think about with the visual strength, especially with your work, Sarah, is um, how it really uh, brings such a human element. And I'm wondering about going through that process of something um, so personally devastating, but going through it, because making a graphic novel, people don't know, it's a long, lot of work. Um, I don't really know what my question is. I kind of derailed myself there. Um, <laughs> tell me a bit about that process of really getting that humanity out of your work in that way, like, is there a catharsis to it? <laughs> I know I am thinking, like I'm not just sitting here, I am, there's things happening inside my head. Uh, yeah. We can come back. No, no, I got it, I got it. Uh, 
Yeah, no, I mean, that was what I wanted to do with my, with my book. I had gone through this few years of my mom dying. I wasn't her primary care, caretaker, but I saw her a lot, and it was very devastating. My mom was quite young. She died when she was 60, and she'd been sick for about six years. And she was very, very healthy, and there was no history in our family of Alzheimer's, and she just, she was very, like, word-focused person, very intellectual, had been a teacher all her life. So it was this very devastating and also a very intimate experience um, of, of being with your parent who's dying and who's, um, who you're helping with taking care of themselves. And um, I feel like I'm walking away from your question, but I'm coming oh, back. Go and whichever direction you want. So I felt like I wanted to take this very, very personal experience and share it with other people. And it just felt like something very important to do. Um, and I think it's partly because uh, the book is kind of, mm, it started as, as pages from my journal and quick sketches and, and I always kind of kept that quality to it. So I feel like that's maybe partly why it feels so personal and raw. Um, I don't know, but there is something also about, about drawing and how um, it, brings your own hand to the page. Like I've, I've said that already, but just, uh, there's something more revealing about images, I feel like. And as soon as I say that, I want to take it back because I've read poetry that's incredibly deeply moving and revealing, but there's something about hand-drawn images that are like sharing, a, for me, sharing a deeper part of myself. I would I would go as far as to say that if you're not working from that place that is you know, truly meaningful for you, you might as well not bother. You know, it, it's like you know, you've got to commit from as deep down inside you as you possibly can go. And if you're just simply skating across the surface, it's you're you're probably wasting your time. I, I know that's it's a provocative thing to say. I mean. Does anyone disagree with me? Tell me, engage, please. <laughs> I think sometimes you don't have a choice. It's the way to make money. So, there's um, always a choice. <laughs> I'm sorry? Someone said there's always a choice, but please keep going. Go um, well, I just find that you, you take a job and, and like you've all been talking about an organic process and how this is really a really nice thing to do to move from words to images and I think most author illustrators if they uh, have some success that publishers let them do that but as a, a, an early artist a lot of times the publisher wants you to um, complete sections of the work like, like you said get all the roughs done then do the final line then do the color and it's, it's kind of a weird way to work, I think, as an artist, but the publishing process seems to regiment it and take away that organic movement. They may try, but the whole point is to become anarchic. I mean, if you look at the history of art and see the way that, say, someone like Rembrandt fought it, you know, against the, you know, I mean, the Burgers practically strung him up for some of the work that he produced. And the, the tradition of, in the Renaissance, of the, of the artists who actually were trying to express themselves in, against the church's so-called best wishes. It's always going to be a struggle. If you're going to actually try and move into new ground, then there will always be people that will want to contain you and get you to produce something safe that's easy to sell. I kind of go a little further into uh, comics and art storytelling and book publishing um, because from my own experience being around comics quite a lot is regular mainstream book publishers don't quite know how to handle it yet. Um, and you both nod very, very quickly. I know, Johnny, you, you've had the fortune of just working with regular comic publishers. Yeah, that's fine. But because of the work with Margaret Atwood, you're interacting with a whole other scope of folks now, um, especially with all the press and media. 
and I worry about that difference. Like, do you find you have to justify what you're doing? Um, is it still that challenge that people are not quite getting what this form is? Uh, I don't have to justify it because I'm comic book native. But uh, when we do our our interviews together, when I'm doing press with Margaret, people seem to want her to justify it, um, and uh, then she she puts it in context in terms of she was she grew up in the '40s when everyone read comics. It wasn't just uh, um, a subset or nerds or geeks or what have you. It, Everyone did. Uh, so it was just part of just another form of reading. It wasn't uh, uh, something that was taboo or anything. So, uh, but as for the book publishers themselves, um, I think they're, they're starting to, to, to understand it a little better and, and trying to embrace it, seeing as that it's, uh, I, think it, I think it still is the fastest growing uh, portion of, of publishing sales. Um, so I, I think they're learning to embrace it. I mean, partly you're talking about the structure of publishing houses, where what you actually get is those people that deal with images and those people that deal with words are actually in separate buildings. And the same even applies to, uh, I've noticed when I've been interviewed over the years, they'll either send someone along who will talk about the art in the books, or someone who wants to talk about the words, but it's very, very rare that you'll get someone who's actually comfortable in both arenas. And I've, I've found, I find it really interesting that to some extent, the, um, the, the fine art world sees me as a writer and the literary world sees me as an artist. And the only, the only ones that actually see me for what I am, which is a mongrel, a, you know, like a, a dog's body of the two, is the audience, who fortunately is large. <laughs> do, you, do you want to add anything about your experience? Um, well, I just, I uh, published uh, my first book and will be publishing my second book with a small literary publisher called Freehand. And um, I got to work with Natalie Olson, who won a couple of prizes tonight. And I, I don't know, it was just, it's really different, right, to work with a very small literary Canadian press. And, and then when I sold it in other countries, they just, I mean, all that work was already done. But um, I just worked with an editor and designer who hadn't published a comic book before, but were perfectly happy to do it. And we all just kind of figured it out together. Yeah, so it was, it was fine. Good, yeah. yeah. It's interesting the stories I've heard. I've heard some stories where the ease and other stories where an editor will ask you for a word count for a graphic novel, <laughs> which is great for some folks that do straight up wordless books too. And that's actually an issue with the Canada Council, I think, where uh, if you have a wordless book, you can't get certain fundings for comics and stuff. The artist will always be in the literary world a second-class citizen. There's, there's no way of getting around that. Do you find, or do you have much knowledge between um, how this, the kind of work you do, the area of work you do, uh, how it's the perception of it is in the UK compared to North America? Because when I think of the UK, I think of lots of amazing um, writer-artists like Ronald Searle, Stedman, um, I can't remember his name right now, but did Where the Wind Blows, and... Raymond Briggs. Raymond Briggs. Raymond. Yeah. And also going back, the, uh, uh, Peak, Raymond Peak, who, who did, if any of you have never seen or come across the Gormagas trilogy, probably one of the best pieces of fantasy ever written. And he was a good artist too. Um, so as I was asking, uh, do you, did you have much of a difference with the experience there, or did you involve much in the UK? I left the country. Yeah. I mean, me and Margaret Thatcher didn't get on, so <laughs> I actually didn't start doing this stuff till I got to North America. Um, and in fact, it was, like, it was pretty hilarious because um, about the only country in the world that Griffin and Spain didn't take off was, was the UK. 
And it was, it was partly because the publisher decided that they were going to um, wrap, seal wrap, all of the books. Oh. So no one could actually look at them. <laughs> they, 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 they ended up being shipped to Germany, where they all sold within two months. <laughs> Publishing houses, are, I mean, they're very, very strange. In many ways, they, a lot of them still got their feet in Victorian times. It's, it's quite bizarre. <laughs> um, another thing I'm really curious about when I talk to artists about their work is how influences work their way in. And for some folks, they try not to take in any influences. Others, it can be um, more of like a process of osmosis of just music you're listening to, movies you're watching, and how these things kind of percolate into your work. And I was curious, is there stuff you know for sure? Is there stuff that you really, it drives you, you will not see it in the work, but this is something that's like a total key part of your process. Are, are you asking if that's the case? I'm asking what are some, some examples? Oh, some examples. Uh... You don't have to go yet, Johnny. Don't, don't make oh, okay, I can, I can hide out. All right. <laughs> Over to you. I can go. Say what I said. Okay. <laughs> I, I think we probably have the same influence. Uh, well, when I was writing uh, my memoir, I was really, really into reading um, kind of scruffy autobiographical comics. Um, a lot of like 70s feminist comics, and um, I'm just now, of course, like my mind's gone completely blank. But even like stuff like by Elaine Kaniski from and. Um, other, oh my god, blank mind, but... Trina Robbins, Lee yeah, Myers. Like, just all those 70s guys, and just all the amazing, like, I mean, Mouse, for sure, even though not in my art style, but just that, just my deep admiration for people that were telling really personal, um, big stories, for Persepolis, all those. And right now, my second book is um, about a serial killer um, who lived in British Columbia in the 1800s. So I've been reading um, a lot about uh, Victorian murderesses and uh, Rick Geary's comics about um, Victorian criminals and uh, Alias Grace by our friend. Well, she and I like this. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so lots of novels and also lots of um, books about British Columbian history. I'm excited for this. I'm so excited, Robin, and if I ever finish it, <laughs> you and I can be excited together. <laughs> and I think that's testament to what I was saying earlier about the long slog of comics. Yeah. Uh, if, if I look at paintings I've done for, for, for books or just as paintings, um, even things I'd done 20, 25 years ago, I can actually, when I look at the pictures, I can remember the radio plays that I was listening to mm -hmm. at the time. It just, quite literally, as I focus in on some aspect of the picture, the, what I was hearing and what was going on at the time, even the music I was listening to, just comes flooding back at me. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is, is huge, uh, and other magical realist writers like Salman Rushdie and uh, people who are great with brush like Jessica Abel and um, uh, Jillian Tamaki, uh, Paul Pope, and uh, actually Nick was a huge influence in terms of uh, learning that you can, I think like a lot of people I didn't know you could walk in two worlds like that. There's the literary world and there's the drawing world. So when I first ran across uh, the Griffin and Sabine uh, trilogy, I, I didn't. I just loved the that you could find. It was like it was like this this thing that you kind of found. This, this and you pull things out. And it was literary, but at the same time, fantastic illustration. So those are some of my influences. I'm going to open up to some questions. If anyone in the audience has some stuff they want to ask. Um, so, 
uh, wants to know what are some lessons you've learned through your creative process that helped with your future works. All right. Say so that again. What are some lessons learned through the creative process that have helped you with your future works? Well, I, first thing I would say is I, I think there's a, a tendency to think of um, works, whether they be books or paintings, or as though they each one was a separate thing. Whereas in, in my experience, when I look back, they're all joined together. They're all actually one thing. And of course, you have to sort of begin and end a book and it gets published. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's the end of it. Because the, the flows that run through it, both forwards and backwards, are, are an ongoing reflection of everything that I'm learning and everything that I'm experiencing. So I, I've stopped thinking about them in those terms as separate. In, in fact, I give you a, a, a perfect example was many years ago I was working on a, a book and I had um, a, a, about four or five paragraphs, the, the equivalent of a page, that I really liked. And I, I, I was kind of hanging on to it, but it just wasn't working with the rest of the book. And I, I fought it and fought it, and eventually I had to let go of it. And I put it on one side. Three books later, um, halfway through the book, and I suddenly go, I've already written the next page. And I go and find it, and I pull it out, and I change two words, two words on the whole page. The, the whole thing is just one continuity. So the, the informing process is, I think, is, is a lot more to do with your commitment to what you're doing. So in other words, your art, your life, your spirituality, everything has to become part of a single unit, and then we'll feed off each other. And I've learned to uh, let go a bit, to uh, pull off. Like a lot of times when I uh, work for myself, I write full, I used to write these full scripts, almost like I'm writing for someone else, and then I'd go back in, and much like you were saying, Sarah, like uh, once you're drawing, then, then you realize what it actually needs or what it needs to be. Um, so I've, I've learned to just pull back in and use a much more skeletal approach, and then let, letting the work, um, let the discovery happen through the work, even, even with collaborating, sometimes just kind of stripping it down and, and building it and then throwing that back over and then seeing and, and working with that process with myself and with others. Are you saying you'd strip back Margaret Atwood's work, send it back to her and say, any less? She's a really good collaborator. <laughs> yeah, she's like, you can, she takes all notes and you could, right, how about this? And she's like, that ah, works, let's do it. Yeah, she's not like, don't you speak to me? Like, she's, she's a really good collaborator. It's very open to collaboration. It's really cool because if you if you read the first volume, you can see some of your collaboration in the back of it, oh, yeah. like sharing drawings back and forth and Margaret Atwood's drawings. Yeah, with more of her drawings in the second one. Did you have any lessons learned through the creative process? No, I don't. You haven't learned I, that? No, I. <laughs> Did you know that Sarah also teaches? Learned a thing. No, I I think partly I learned that I have to. Um, Oh, it's like the biggest cliche in the world, but like you do just have to get up every day and work on stuff. I mean, I, I have a day job. I've always had a day job. Um, and I, I published my first book when I was 41. And so I'm still learning a lot of stuff. But one thing is about just sitting down and working on it, even when, like, honestly, a lot of the time I hate doing it. And I, like, I love it overall in a general sense, but I actually hate sitting down at the table. And, and once I get into what I'm doing, then I love it, and I'm like, oh, I want to do this all day. But it's really hard to just get like, my butt into the chair, and I learned that I had to do that a lot more than I was, so. I know, Nick, you talked about doing multiple different projects at once, or whatever gets your fancy at the beginning of the day. Um, and it's, Sarah, it sounds like, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, but mainly you focus on one project at a time. Is that just for sanity's sake? Um, I've done a few little things and I'm kind of uh, doing these side projects. I have like two, two or three other projects.
projects that I'm working on at this very micro level, but I can't really, I mean, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on one thing, except for not. <laughs> um, how about yourself, Johnny, to balance in other words? I, I'm praying for the day when I could focus on one thing, because I, I really, I think that would be best, but I'm all, I've been working on multiple things for years. And it looks like I will be for another few, but um, there's a there's a promised land where I can work on one thing at once, and I'm looking forward to that day. Is that out of like um, kind of a financial necessity to like be able to do your personal creative work, but also the work that that pay? I think uh, what happened with me was when the first thing went over, I was so excited that I uh, but I, I didn't want to not be doing comics for a living. So I pitched a bunch of other stuff, and, and but then everything got green lit. It's like, all right, do it. <laughs> so, because you just expected a bunch of stuff to fall through, right? So, but then when it doesn't fall through, and then you know, and then it just keeps kind of building in that way. So now I'm trying to pare down and, and cut back and welcome to the load of freelance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, feast and famine. So I'm, I'm waiting for the famine. So I'm always throwing things out there, but. So far, so good. Do we have some more questions? Shannon? This one's for Nick. Was it hard to convince a publisher to, um, to publish the first Griffin Sabine book in regards to the production with the, uh, the flaps and getting it's very different books? Because I didn't, I, I didn't even, <laughs> I, I wasn't even pitching the book. I'd actually got, I was pitching two or three other ideas and uh, I'd got the dummy that I created for Griffin Speed in my bag and it was under my clothes. And I'd been uh, talking to the, uh, the editor and I was just about to leave and I was putting my stuff back in my bag and the, the, sort of the clothes moved apart and she saw the dummy in the bottom of the bag and she said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's nothing. She said, no, what is it? It looks interesting. And I said, no, 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 you don't want to see that. And she said, yes, I do, yes, I do. And so she's trying to grab it and I'm trying to stop <laughs> I mean, this is a this is a book that you know sold three million for God's sake, and, and I, I didn't want it to be published. Um, but she grabs it and then she says, "Well, can I show it to somebody else?" And I was a bit, you know, fed up because I actually, you know, was going to show it to a friend of mine who lived in San Francisco, um, and they phoned me up a, a week later and said we want to do it, and I just. Yeah, so in answer to your question, no, <laughs> I did absolutely opposite. I tried to not convince them. All right, anyone else? Um, yeah, you, yep. specifically in mind, although it did spring from the fact that I found myself engaged by opening an envelope and realizing that that, um, that dialogue that I was having, a physical experience, was very powerful. So when I first constructed Griffin and Sabine, I wanted to continue to bring that over. Not only did I want words and images to, to come together, but I wanted to um, give the reader that sensation that they belonged. I mean, I, of course, I didn't know at that time that that was going to really genuinely work. I, I thought of it more as a kind of sidebar. Um, it, is, it, it is very interesting, though, the degree to which I think that did pull the play. I wonder if new readers coming to it now have a different way of connecting with the work, um, just given that people don't send letters as much anymore? Uh, almost certainly. I mean, when, when the new one came out this year, um, it, it was very clear that there was a very, very different audience out there. I mean, you know, there's, there's many people in their teens that have never posted a letter in their life. You know, they, they certainly have never picked up a fountain pen. Um, and the idea of, of waiting 
for a letter to get to somebody and then have another one back yeah. is, you know, is an anathema. I mean, how can you possibly wait that long? Or I think we had a second one. Yeah. I had to get a separate office. I rented a, at one point, I rented a place directly across the street from my apartment. <laughs> it was a 40 second commute, um, but I needed to be out of my space and away from my things because I would just putter around and you know. Um, and then I, at one point I got a program on my Mac called Freedom, Mac Freedom, that shuts off the internet <laughs> for, <laughs> for a limited amount of time. And it's, it just helped a lot and, um, but, Life, life kind of creeps in. A lot of times people don't think you're actually working because you're just, oh, you're, you're in your studio just drawing. So a lot of times people are just kind of like, oh, I'm yeah, sorry, Charlie. <laughs> I, I, you have to trick yourself. I mean, when I first started doing, because I, I, you know, before I did my own books, I used to do um, uh, book covers. And I would do the illustrations. And um, I, I lived in a house with, in London with eight people. Uh, it was pretty crowded. Um, and I, I, I worked in the same place. So what I would do is I'd get up in the morning and I would go out to a cafe, um, have coffee, come back half an hour later and pretend, quite literally pretend to myself that I was coming to a new building. So, and, and in those early years when I was still struggling with commitment, yeah, I had to just, you know, literally um, force myself to do things. I'd find various ways like, coming in and having a big pad and a pencil and I just scribble so that I actually got through the first five minutes of the day so I'd actually done something. <laughs> and, and little by little I learned that, yeah, it's not such a big thing, you know, starting. And the more you, the more you love what you do, and as you said, there's a great difference between when you're doing something for somebody else, even if it's a collaboration, to when you're actually working through your own ideas. Because for me, when I'm working on my books, in my way, in my time, in the order that I want, I have no difficulty whatsoever. It's just the day is a stream of passion. Many, many people have had to chain themselves to the death. You just have no fun. Did you just say my day is a stream of passion? <laughs> 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 okay, my day is not. <laughs> You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Don't touch me. Um, I uh, no, it's not as bad as I make it. Um, I found a couple things that are super helpful. One is like complete, like doing the stuff that Johnny was talking about with like lots of internet restrictions. Um, and also, I have. Uh, two other cartoonists that we have this little um, like a private blog where we have deadlines and we post our stuff at the end of the week um, and we don't necessarily give each other feedback we just it's, it's a deadline it's an external deadline um, so yeah like I, I I have to do I have to have external structure and then once that structure is in place I can work but um, I guess I'm just um, it's difficult for me to actually focus. Um, so, yeah. But so those things really help to have other people who are relying on you. So, paradoxically, that means that when I'm doing work for other people, I actually work faster and uh, more diligently. And then when I'm my own boss, I need to actually um, ask my partner to lock me in my studio or, you know, I mean, not, well, and, <laughs> yeah, or I have to, you know, feel like my my two friends are waiting for me to post to our blog. They've both posted. Why am I not posting? So that really helps for me. I, I, I've got one practical thing for you. Um, it, it's, um, uh, it's a gestalt therapy technique. 
um, where you, uh, you find a long room and you start at one end of the room and you walk slowly from one side of the room to the other going, I don't want to do this. I really don't want to do this. I don't want to fucking do this. And then when you get to the far wall, you turn around and you come back and say, I really want to do this. I'm really looking forward to this. And after you've done this about four or five times, you've actually separated the conflict within you. I'm dead serious about this. It's, it's a very, very effective technique. Once you've separated them out, then you're actually able to work from those positions. Turns out they've been on the distraction. Good on you. <laughs> All right, we got uh, one more question. We'll do a couple more questions and then we're going to go to the signings. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, this is a question for you. I'm curious about your publishing process. So you published Tangles with Freehand. Did you send them an unfinished manuscript, an idea? Did they approach you? Were you rejected by other publishers? I'm curious to know. I appreciate that you're being very candid and vulnerable, and so I would really love to know the process that you went through with your publishing. Okay. Um, yeah, of course I got rejected by other publishers, for sure. Uh, and um, in the end, there were a few, like, there were three publishers who were interested in the book, and I chose Freehand because, definitely not because I got a gigantic advance, but because they were really passionate about it. Um, the book was finished, but um, they they did make edits. I worked with an editor there who had never worked on a comic before, but she I, I felt like her editing process with me was super useful, um, just like you would with any narrative. She pointed out ways, assumptions that I made because it was a story about my family that I understood and that all made sense to me, but if you thought about like my father as a character who needed to start the book in one place and finish in another place, then the, the reader needed to know more. Um, and then uh, we went into design and production. Um, About the movie of my book. Yeah, do you, are you drawing for that or something? Yeah, we're, we're still, it's, so it's in beginning stages. There's a trailer of it for it on my website. Um, I'm working with an animation company here in Vancouver called Giant Ant, and um, we are in early stages of finding um, producers, and so it's, it's like, it's in development. But so, I wanted yeah. to know about physically how oh, physically you're how, doing it, um, like you, are you redrawing the whole thing? Or? No, no, I'll just be, um, so far the animations that we've made from the book, I do the keyframes that are the drawings that the animators start from, and then they take it and they make it their own animation, yeah. So I might have to do some additional drawings. Um, there's some drawings in the, in the trailer that aren't in the book, but, but I, I'm not an animator. All right, so I think that